0: Hi everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And here I am live in Baja, Mexico with my good friend um, and you know just all around brilliant guy, Dr. Tom Fabian. And we're gonna be talking about all things leaky gut and really importantly, the tools that you have at your disposal to do an accurate and useful assessment and uh, treatment plan design. So, let me tell you about Dr. Fabian and then we'll jump right in. He is a leading expert on the role of microbiome in health, immune function, chronic disease, and aging. As a translational scientist, his primary focus is on the clinical application of microbiome research in the integrative and functional medicine space. He received his PhD in molecular biology from the University of Colorado at Boulder, and he's worked as a biomedical researcher in the biotechnology industry, and more recently as a consultant um, in the microbiome testing field. He currently serves as a consultant and science advisor with Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory. He's also on the science advisory board uh, at Designs for Health. In addition, he's certified as a nutrition therapy practitioner By the Nutrition Therapy Institute in Denver. Dr. Fabian, Tom, always, always, always good to have you on New Frontiers.
1: Likewise. Well, thanks so much for having me back, Kara. It's great to be back.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've got a lot to cover. So we're going to jump right in. We're talking about leaky gut. This is, you know, a perennially interesting topic in our field, actually, from before we were able to assess zonulin. I mean, I remember actually. When I was a student before I went to medical school I worked in a naturopathic medical office I was the I was at the front desk um and I remember and I would shadow so I was considering going to medical school and I would shadow one of the physicians there Eugene Zamperone he's still in practice um and I remember vividly him writing the whole leaky gut um figure generating this for a patient as he taught he was he was talking to the mom the, the son had, um, uh, I think ADHD and he was linking it to gastrointestinal disturbance and intestinal permeability. And this was in the nineties and we were considered quacks actually, you know? So it was this mass, it was, it, was a, it was a fundamental piece of our toolkit and something that we addressed routinely, but it was not accepted by the greater medical community at all, really not until Fasano. Um, You know, a couple decades later, discovered zonulin, and and then we started to piece together the story that leaky that leaky gut is, you know, really associated with, I don't kind of everything. And so, give me just a basic thought on leaky gut, on what it is, on what it's associated. So just give us a leaky gut primer. Maybe any comments on what I've just said, Um, you know, and just thinking about how we're currently assessing and treating it. And then we'll just go on. And I know you're going to evolve our understanding in this conversation.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it really is a kind of a ever progressing topic. So I think the original concepts came out quite a while ago, as you alluded to. Um, And it took quite a while, of course, for that to be accepted sort of in conventional circles in research. But now you see hundreds of papers published every year addressing um, permeability, intestinal permeability issues. Um, so essentially I think the core of what it means is when you're considering the intestinal lining. So of course we're talking primarily about that one cell thick layer, the epithelial layer that covers the entire intestinal lining, entire mucosa from your mouth all the way down. Um, and so in order for that to serve as a selective barrier, so we want the good things to come through like nutrients, mm-hmm. of course, and then we want microbes in particular, toxins, just things that are are really not good for our body. Of course, we don't want those to come through. So our body has various mechanisms in place to regulate that and prevent that, and to change it depending on the needs of, of what's going on in the gut. Um, so that really involves kind of at its core, uh, in terms of the classic definition of intestinal permeability is the spaces between those epithelial cells. Um, And so those are regulated by several mechanisms, but the main one really is the tight junction complex. That's a complex of proteins that basically kind of sews the cells together. Uh, So basically there's this really tight, fairly impermeable barrier um, that only allows very small molecules to get through, but that can be regulated by the body through um, processes such as zonulin release. So zonulin is sort of a a product that our epithelial cells produce that basically increases the permeability. So there are physiological scenarios where that may be needed, uh, for say fluid regulation, electrolyte regulation, those sorts of things, Uh, even circadian rhythms. We know that, uh, permeability can increase just naturally during the day, Uh, And that's part of the circadian rhythm regulation of intestinal permeability uh, so that that allows kind of facilitates uh, nutrients getting through. Um, So there's some physiological purposes to increasing permeability under fairly regulated conditions. But of course, we know that can be dysregulated by infections, by toxins, even by stress. And that allows larger molecules to get through, even bacteria to get through. And then that can overstimulate the immune system, leading to uh, a wide range of chronic conditions. I think there was a recent review article in, I believe it was Nature Reviews, gastroenterology, Mm -hmm. um, that basically reviewed all the evidence linking that to autoimmune conditions, chronic inflammatory conditions, and a wide range of allergic type conditions. So pretty much across the board, both the conditions that we see in practice. So uh, very, very central.
0: Yeah, it's an extraordinary turnaround from, you know, when I was uh, preparing to go to medical school. Yeah, it's extraordinary because really what isn't intestinal permeability pathological intestinal permeability uh, associated with.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and so I think um, research has progressed not only in terms of understanding intestinal permeability in a bigger context, understanding the details, all the factors that are involved, how it's regulated, factors that increase it, factors that help prevent that from happening. Uh, but in addition, so that's of course spawned some additional types of testing that are available for that. Um, the one that we use with GI map is fecal zonulin. Uh, so that's a great marker for kind of classic intestinal permeability. Uh, when you see elevated lezo- levels of zonulin, um, that could be related to even gluten exposure, stress, uh, we see it frequently in uh, autoimmune conditions, allergic conditions, uh, even just extraintestinal symptoms. Um, so it's common, for example, for patients to have skin issues, uh, gut-brain axis okay. issues, musculoskeletal type symptoms. We see that all the time. Uh, so it's really a fun-
0: yeah, it's a fundamental investigation, really, for, for you know, really any, any condition uh, with, with some con- extent of chronicity i think exactly maybe a little bit less concerned about acute although we can see acute to something chronic when intestinal permeability isn't sufficiently addressed like say food poisoning
1: right yeah i mean that that is a point to know there are some things that can raise it just sort of short term may not be as much of an issue uh, but certainly chronic elevation um But beyond the concept of intestinal permeability and leaky gut, particularly involving tight junctions, uh, really the idea of the intestinal barrier has expanded to include other components. Uh, So now in terms of modern assessments with comprehensive stool testing, we have the ability to assess other contributors, other parts of this barrier. Um, So really just to kind of zoom out a bit, uh, we're always focused, of course, to some extent, in functional medicine on sort of the systems approach, systems biology. So zooming out a bit and looking at the intestinal barrier, um, even the the gut microbiome, the normal microbiome, is a key part of that barrier, um, and it really forms this sort of intimate relationship with the barrier, where it secretes these microbes, secrete various products that promote various aspects of the barrier, and then various components of the barrier actually also support the microbiome. So there's all these different interactions. So there's the microbiome layer. So we know if we have dysbiosis, that is one potential insight into the state of the barrier. Uh, we also have then the next sort of the next layer down essentially would be the mucus layer, uh, which includes Let me, not listen, only-
0: I want to just flag you. I actually want to ask you a couple questions. So my first question I want to know the microbes, so I'm going to ask you about the microbes that are supportive and who we want to think about. And then I want to I want to ask you, like, like when you look at it, actually, I have one question before I ask you this one. Is the, the connection with um, the permeable, central nervous system uh, permeability, like, if you see a significant uh, gut permeability issue, are you thinking blood-brain barrier, like? Or would you be concerned? Would you be concerned about blood-brain barrier? Um, would you be less concerned given what the person is presenting with, or maybe the age, and more concerned, obviously, if they have some sort of a neurodegenerative condition? Can you just speak about that, like, and can can there be insights on the GI map that would make you think blood-brain barrier?
1: That's a good question. So I'm not aware of something specific other than the general fact that. When patients do have increased uh, gut intestinal permeability, um, that that's been linked in research to an increased, sort of generally an increased risk for barrier dysfunction at other places. So you can think of the gut skin axis. Uh, yes. We certainly know that there's a two-way interaction there yes. in terms of barrier dysfunction. Uh, that's true for the lungs. Uh, there's definitely a strong gut-lung connection. And then, of course, the gut-brain axis, which does involve uh, gut Ah, uh, the blood-brain barrier to some extent, um, but I can't say that there are specific factors that I'm aware of with GMAP that you would specifically identify as implicating uh, blood-brain barrier issues.
0: Okay. Okay. And ju- and I want to point and gut, genital, urinary. You know, chronic UTIs, yep. um, interstitial cystitis, also. So yeah, that's it just it's it's important for us to just remember that likely, well. It's influencing beyond just the the local environment. Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about good guys. Uh, when you glance at a report, you know, what are you looking for in terms of protective factors, protective microbes, and uh, microbes of concern?
1: You can kind of roughly break that into, of course, the good guys, the bad guys. So on GI map, it's fairly easy to recognize. Uh, So we have a full section on pathogens. Pathogens are well known to disrupt the barrier in many different ways. So they all have kind of their own set of virulence factors in particular, um, some of which specifically target the barrier and disrupt the barrier in various ways. Uh, So that is a key part of the assessment because you're looking essentially at the balance. What are the factors that disrupt the barrier? What are the factors that promote a healthy barrier? Um, So in terms of pathogens, I'll just give a couple examples. So uh, C. diff is a really common one. Uh, We actually do see that. I think the stats are on average about four, three to 4% of the population has detectable C. diff. Um, A large proportion of that is asymptomatic. Uh, But if they are expressing those toxins, then we know from research that that's really sort of how C. diff causes the main problems in the gut um, that lead to inflammation. And so these toxins A and B, and we have the genes for both of those toxins on GI map, um, they can actually damage the intestinal barrier beyond just leaky gut. So they can cause uh, increase in those spaces between the cells Uh, but they can actually damage the epithelial cells themselves. And that's basically through this activity of the toxin. Uh, And then that can basically increase the exposure of the underlying lamina propria to these microbes, even just normal microbes. They don't necessarily have to be um, opportunists that are producing LPS, uh, just normal Mm -hmm. microbes that are in the wrong place. So they're getting too close or they're getting even across the barrier Um, that can stimulate the immune system. Um, So there are various ways in which they do this. There's, for example, uh, staphylococcus aureus and pterococcus produce enzymes that can actually um, disrupt the barriers directly. So those enzymes act on barrier components, the tight junction components, and can directly cause leaky gut. Um, So there's a sort of range of things that different pathogens will do. Um, one of the things that we'll get to a little bit later, because that's going to be a significant focus here today, is talking about the regeneration of the epithelial layer, which when we're talking about gut healing, uh, so that really takes us beyond just this concept of leaky gut. Yes. First, we have the stem cells and the crypts. Um, we also have the process of differentiation where those stem cells become the individual types of cells in the barrier, like the enterocytes and the enteroendocrine cells. Um, and so the pathogens can influence that process. Basically, they can interfere with the proper differentiation. So you don't get these fully functional cells. They can increase cell death. Um, so you may have heard, for example, the term villus atrophy, uh-huh. um, which is common okay. in a lot of infections. And in some cases that can be due to the fact that pathogens can accelerate cell death, cause cell death in various ways. So that puts an extra burden on the regeneration process. Um, Those same pathogens can interfere with that regeneration process. And obviously if you can't regenerate the lost cells, then that's another factor that contributes to barrier dysfunction. Wow.
0: Um, Okay, I wanna make sure that we circle back at the, you know, at the end of the talk, we can continue to kind of lay it out uh, to just give really key take home points in both using the GI map, but also the interventions that we're going to be leaning on um, as you kind of outline uh, some of these new areas that we want to be thinking about. Let me see, what about, the differences among the different parts of the gastrointestinal tract? Like, can you speak to that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think before we, um, kind of fully dive into that though, I wanted to, so we talked about the microbiome being a key part of the barrier mm-hmm. and then there's the mucus layer, um, yes, which has secreted factors like secretory IgA is a part of the mucus barrier. Um, uh, these antimicrobial proteins and peptides. So it's like alpha-defensin proteins like that that also have antimicrobial function produced by what are called paneth cells. That's a type of epithelial cell. Um, So that's a big part of the barrier. Um, Then there, of course, the epithelial cells themselves. And then there's the immune system. So you essentially have kind of four main components to the barrier. So understanding that, then you can see from research that those, those components can change as you go through the GI tract. Um, so for example, one of the big differences is in the mucus layer between the small intestine and the large intestine. So we know that the small intestine typically has, especially the upper small intestine, which is involved primarily in absorption. Um, so we know the mucus layer is much thinner there. And the thinking is that it's thinner to allow, uh, those nutrients more easy access to get through and be absorbed. Um, Further down, as you get towards the ileum, when that microbial concentration increases, then you need a thicker mucus layer to start to provide more protection and distance between those microbes. So you get a thicker mucus layer a little bit to some extent in the ileum. And then in the colon, that really changes a lot. So in the colon, you have two mucus layers. So the deeper layer that's right next to the epithelium is this very kind of thick and penetrable layer. And then there's the outer mucus layer, which in the colon is where a lot of these mucus dwelling microbes like acromantia tend to thrive. Um, And those same microbes actually help promote the production of mucus. They actually can influence the whole process of regeneration of these cells so that it, for example, acromantia can skew the development of cells more towards these mucus producing cells, which are the goblet cells. So Um, lots of really interesting interactions coming out of the research and how microbes are involved at every level of this barrier sort of uh, renewal process. Um, One of the kind of stats I just want to throw out as far as the barrier, just to kind of, um, I think, set the stage for this sort of focus on the regeneration aspect of it is uh, essentially, I think we're all aware that the, the, Intestinal lining turns over every three to five days or so. Um, So that amounts to, I mean, they basically have done estimates of the number of cells involved, and that's up to 50 billion cells are shed every day in the intestine. So of course, they have to be renewed. They have to be replaced. um, And that's really a very fine-tuned process. Um, Lots of studies now show that diet and the microbiome can actually influence that, that process. Um so there's a lot of ways in which we can influence the barrier again beyond just the original concept of leaky gut.
0: It's it's really fascinating and I appreciate you bringing this to our attention. I know a lot of us are aware of acromantia. I happen to be a big fan of it. <laughs> We've talked about it many times. Um, I'm and it and we know that it's a mucin but what you're saying is that it's it's actually it it seems like it degrades in order to allow for renewal. Like it sets the stage for the recycling journey and keeping that barrier really intact and, and functioning. Would you say that's true?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So studies indicate that it it doesn't necessarily under most circumstances kind of over consume or break down the barrier excessively. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time that it's consuming the mucus, it's producing factors that stimulate the renewal of mucus. Um, and that's actually a really dynamic process. So I think most practitioners may not be aware that the entire mucus layer is replaced on average every one to two hours. So incredible. it's a highly dynamic process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, so let me draw the, the distinction though, between commensals like acromantia that promote sort of this homeostatic um, balance. Mm-hmm. Versus pathogens, so another set of virulence factors secreted by certain pathogens are enzymes that basically break down the mucus, um, and they can break it down completely. So like toxins A kind and of, B
0: from C. diff? I mean, those guys.
1: Um, that one isn't isn't one of the ones that necessarily digest <laughs> mucus, but there are others, I believe, from, say, salmonella um, and other pathogens. Yeah. Um, and pathogens, can they have a whole kind of tool belt of things that they can use to kind of access the barrier. Um, because that's really how they do their damage and how they can replicate um, and how they can sort of re-engineer the whole gut environment to their favor. Um, And so that's really a big difference there is that pathogens tend to to really damage the barrier. They can over-degrade the mucus. um, They can dissolve the tight junctions. They can kill off the epithelial cells, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of things pathogens can do Uh, But as far as the good guys, um, probably another one we would want to talk about is butyrate, butyrate producers. Um, So there's a lot of details here and it's, you know, we certainly can't cover it all in in the podcast. So, you know, if you kind of get a little bit lost in some of the details, we can kind of come back and summarize. But really the bottom line for a lot of this is ultimately you want to make sure you're working towards balance. Um, Because regardless of some of these details, ultimately it comes down to balance. You want enough of the good guys. So with GI map, we have that commensal section and we have a really great representation of some of these key organisms that play a role in supporting the barrier. Um, So that's, when we're talking about expanding our view of assessing the barrier. Assessing Uh the commensals is a really important part of that.
0: Let me just ask you a question on this topic. You and I have talked about this before. We've had a lot of discussions in our clinic, in our clinic rounds, about acromantia and the fact that it shows up in, in, in higher levels in certain conditions, like MS comes to mind. And my thought, so I, I, I've pushed back on whether or not it, I don't know that it it's, is a, it's a pathogen. I don't know that there's any evidence for it being pathological, um, but it's, it strikes me because we know intestinal permeability mm-hmm. is certain is certainly present in all of the conditions that I'm aware of associated with higher acromancy. And there's just a, a couple, maybe papers have shown up. Could it be evidence? Could it be a surrogate marker of excessive mucin degradation, like pathological mucin degradation? So acromancy is showing up in higher amounts in the fecal bolus. I'm just, I just wanna like get your input. I'll bring it back to my clinician rounds. And I'm, I know people here are listening or thinking about it. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, so there was some original research that sort of suggested that may be the case when there were these original observations that acromancy was higher in certain kind of neurodegenerative neurological type conditions like MS, Parkinson's, et cetera. Um, Since then, it's really not clear if it's playing a role. Um, So it could be just sort of a downstream effect of some of the changes that happen uh, as part of these neurological conditions, um, neurodegenerative conditions. So we know that a lot of them, of course, when you start to get neurodegeneration, that can have a negative effect on the gut-brain axis, obviously. Sure. Um, so we see similar um, changes. For example, in Parkinson's, one of the early signs is constipation. Yes. Um, and with constipation, we often, whether it's related to Parkinson's or not, we often see elevated, uh, sometimes decreased, but sometimes elevated acromantia. Um, I was really curious about that because in a general pattern of poor digestion, uh, that's one of our most common patterns. You see a lot of overgrowth. You may see, of course, low elastase, uh, high H. pylori, which can suppress stomach acid. We'll often see high acromantia. So I looked into the research to see what's there as far as that possible link. Um, There wasn't much initially. Then eventually a study came out showing that um, high sugar consumption is one of the factors that can lead to increased acromantia. And since then, there's a little bit more research uh, kind of adding to that picture. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is mostly a clinical observation, but what we think is in patients that have neurodegenerative conditions, that's possible that um, the reduced digestion component is an early part of sort of the effects of reduced nerve function. uh, And that can lead to reduced digestion. When you have increased substrates getting into the colon, we know that can stimulate overgrowth of a number of microbes, and we just see that pattern a lot, so it kind of makes sense based on the pattern. Uh, We're sort of waiting to see how the research catches up with that, but the story of Echromantia being a cause of these conditions so far, there's not enough research to really implicate it.
0: Right, right. You know, I wanted, I had a thought earlier when you were giving us some of the extraordinary turnover rates of the cells and the mucin, et cetera, we can see, you know, mitochondrial defects, people who have mitochondrial variants, of genetic mitochondropathies, actually even acquired mitochondropathies, of course, they show up first in the gut. So that was a thought that I was flagged on earlier when you were sharing about this, just the change to energetics. It, it's not surprising that neurodegenerative conditions would show up in the gut first.
1: Right, absolutely. And, and for this reason. Yeah, and there's there's actually a growing amount of research on that, that very topic that because there's such a high energetic demand, um, obviously if you're turning over this many cells and these yeah. cells are performing so many functions, I mean, that's such a critical set of functions that they have to carry out to manage that interface between yes. the environment and our internal physiology. Uh, very energetically demanding. And I think it's second only to the brain in terms of consuming overall energy. Um, So of course you need a lot of substrates for that. Um, And when there are local conditions in the gut that restrict some of these nutrients, then that can certainly be part of the problem. Um, So they think that that can be an issue with, for example, inflammatory bowel disease um, and conditions where you have a lack of the butyrate producers. Yeah. Uh, so especially in the colon, when you have a lack of butyrate, that makes up, I think, 70, 80% of the substrate for energy generation for healthy colon cells. Um, and so they think that actually one of the problems with regeneration and healing the gut in IBD is when you have a lack of butyrate. Yeah. So it's interesting that you, that you call attention to that just because there is such a high energy demand. Um, Again, you know, when we were thinking about the intestinal epithelium and the energy demands for the turnover, um, for all the functions that they are performing, it's really second only to the brain in terms of its energy demands. Um, So, just as an example, in the colon, we know that the normal microbes, especially the butyrate producers, provide a lot of energy substrate for the colon cells, particularly butyrate. So, we know butyrate makes up 70 to 80%.
0: And just remind me again on the GI map, the top butyrate producers, what we're looking at?
1: The top butyrate producers on GI map would be the Fecale bacterium prosnitsi. Uh, so that's really kind of the top butyrate producer, the main, the widely recognized um, keystone species. Uh, and then we also added recently Rosberia. Uh, Rosberia is another prolific butyrate producer. Um, and then you can get some indirect insights into butyrate, for example, from secretory IgA. Uh, Because one of the key stimulants for that is butyrate. Uh, So you see low butyrate or low butyrate producers, and then of course, low secretory IgA. Um, That can be part of the sort of this picture overall, suggesting uh, insufficient butyrate. Uh, But again, you're always putting this whole picture together. Um, But if you have a lack of butyrate in a scenario of, say, for example, inflammatory bowel disease, Um, So we know that typically in Crohn's disease, the normal microbes can be uh, reduced by somewhere from 10 to 50 fold. So you're getting a much lower production of butyrate, uh, which is really kind of starving those cells of the key fuel that they use. So when you have damage, that's happening from the inflammation in IBD, then you're not able to repair that barrier so well when you don't have sufficient energy. Um, So that's kind of one of the the key processes that's thought to be involved. Um, and actually, the, the normal microbes produce uh, several other factors as well. I'll just mention a couple just to kind of uh, help everybody understand. It's more these beneficial microbes produce a lot more than just, of course, butyrate and some of the short-chain fatty acids. Um, one of the ones that's becoming more and more recognized, it's not really talked about, is called purines. Um, And so these are precursors to uh, nucleic acids that are needed for cell division. Uh, They're needed for ATP itself, uh, for example. Um, So we know that those can be decreased in various conditions, IBS, IBD, et cetera. Um, And even a recent study showed that fecalibacterium prosnitsi, which is on GMAP, uh, of course, not only produces butyrate, uh, but it does break down fiber. Uh, and the fructose that it generates from fiber. So fructose at a low level actually is supportive for the intestinal barrier. So the kind of the bottom line is that these microbes are producing a pretty wide range of factors that are all supporting a healthy intestinal lining and particularly this regeneration process. Um, and when you have inflammation and pathogens and infections, A scenario that um, is causing an increased demand for regeneration, Mm -hmm. then you can really get into a situation where it's difficult to repair the barrier.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Just as you're talking through this, and the the term that is is being bandied about a lot these days is postbiotics. You know, all of these extraordinary postbiotic players that are regenerating the epithelial barrier and all of that amazing information, the mucin and so forth. Um, they require so it requires a ton of energy and it requires a really robust uh, my- healthy microbiome. And of course we all have gut issues. I mean, when you think about what we're eating, you know in the in the United States and elsewhere um, and how we're living and stressed to circle back that point you brought up earlier, you know, of course, leaky gut is. You know, pathological leaky gut is is everywhere, and we all have dysbiosis. Like we've been giving our microbiome and our intestinal um, mining just horrible information in terms of our diet. Absolutely, so it's really no surprise. So yeah,
1: let's... yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that's that's certainly part of the barrier assessment. So we definitely advocate. Kind of a bigger picture view beyond just leaky gut, as I mentioned. Um, and to really boil it down to sort of most sim- simple approach, assessing those same factors, whether it's diet, whether it's pathogens, opportunistic overgrowth, etc. cetera. Um, you, of course, want to recognize what are the things that are interfering with barrier function um, and then emphasize the things, of course, remove those if possible or address them. And then at the same time, emphasize the microbes and the diet factors, et cetera, that are promoting a healthy intestinal lining. Um, So along those lines, I would kind of come back to acromantia and a few others as well. Um, So when it comes to this whole concept of regenerating the epithelial barrier, and we know there's the the normal sort of homeostatic process, again, we're turning over 50 billion of these a day. So your body just needs to keep doing this. Your normal... Commensal microbes are promoting that process in several ways. Um, so acromancia, as I mentioned, um, in particular, it can actually produce factors that help to promote the proliferation of stem cells so that you get the cells then to replace the ones that are lost. But acromancia does more than that. It actually produces factors that then help these cells assume their proper functions and cell type. Wow. Um, and in particular, it helps promote those mucus-producing cells, the goblet cells. And that's been shown to decrease with age. Um, so hopefully that's we'll touch so on that. interesting.
0: In- yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so you see
1: these correlations where acromancia goes down with age for a lot of people. But centren- centenarians, one of their standout out features is they have, so they may have a, a healthier intestinal barrier overall because they have better ac- acromantia. And then so far, we only have animal studies, but animal studies do show that you can um, give these, give acromancy as a probiotic, and that can help these goblet cells that produce mucus recover. And that's a big, big deal because the mucus layer can can decrease three to six fold in thickness with age. And acromancy was able to increase that up almost back to normal. Um, so you're talking about sort of reversing some of these aging uh, changes that happen in the intestinal barrier just yeah. by applying these. These microbes strategically.
0: It's so interesting, and again, just going back to the fact that we turn it over—you know—within hours, like we just we need to be competent at doing this. And I would imagine, you know, many of us just simply aren't, and then we lose it over time. I and the other piece that's really extraordinary—I want to underline the point that you made—is that acromantia, and other players, you can speak to the other factors, are involved in not just stem cell production, which is amazing, because that's something that really drops off with age, but differentiation of stem yeah. cells, and like giving them, you know, helping them get into their jobs, you know, d- you know, differentiate into the various somatic cells that we need um, to be functioning and thriving. I think another phenomena that happens with aging is that there may be these stem cells, but they're sort of almost ghost cells. You know, they're subpar, they're monoclonal, but and, you know, non not not differentiating and not functioning. Yeah, It's fascinating to me the role that the microbiome plays, probably, you know, locally, and I want you to keep talking about that, but I I wouldn't be surprised if it has, you know, extra intestinal influence as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that that's actually referred to kind of in the big picture. Um in science, they refer to it as the SEMs stem cell niche or niche, however you like to pronounce that, I say niche. Um, And so that's really where the cells surrounding the stem cells, the diet factors, the microbes in that vicinity all have an influence on the health of the stem cells. Um, So that's part of the picture. You can break it down into all kinds of details now based on the study, but studies that are out there, but there's um, evidence that these stem cells themselves um, lose some of their functionality as they get older. Um, they can undergo yeah. senescence. Um, they can just not proliferate as much as as they should, uh, particularly when, in, when really needed to repair damage. Um, some of those cells in the surrounding area, um, such as the connective tissue cells, uh, the immune cells, they all undergo uh, cell senescence as well, epigenetic changes. Uh, so there are lots of things going on during aging that can affect that um, sort of process. Um, So again, you know, from dietary standpoints, there's ways to potentially help to uh, improve that. And actually there's really good research now on fasting, various types of fasting. So there's (laughs) unrestricted fasting, caloric restriction, uh, ketogenic approaches. We know that ketones uh, in particular, which are generated during fasting help to regenerate and sort of essentially almost rejuvenate these stem cells so that they're better able to carry out their functions as we get older.
0: So I just, I wanna underscore what you, um, you know, what you're talking about here by, by shifting your focus onto supporting stem cells, stem cell regenerations, you know, stem cell functionality, et cetera, and that we need this whole microbiome, we're thinking about diet, you've just brought in fasting and not just fasting, but production of ketone bodies as being key players. In helping with barrier regeneration through stem cell um, proliferation, and and that's a it's just a game changing concept, Tom. You know, you've brought a few game changers to this podcast. We had a great conversation not too long ago on hydrogen sulfide. And by the way, folks, we will link to Tom's previous conversations with me uh, so that you can access them. And 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 you know, you just have a you know you have a knack for really being in the front of of the science and um, we need to be considering this and, you know, and, and and all of the variables that are gonna influence, you know, influence not just barrier repair. So we're moving way beyond glutamine. <laughs> glutamine might yeah. be indicated, way beyond zinc carnosine, <laughs> again, indicated in a smart intervention, but- Well, I think you know, that's where the- broadly.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, I know we're moving more and more over time as the field to incorporating sort of precision medicine, personalized medicine approaches. And at the other end of the spectrum, also incorporating the systems biology, sort of big picture interconnectedness. Both of those come into play. We have a lot more research now to inform both sides of that. And that's really where this all comes into play is when we're thinking about gut healing, it's, it's really is way, way more than just glutamine and zinc carnosine and a few other things that those are Standbys. There's good research. Those are still, of course, helpful, but they're not the full picture. Um, And that's especially good to know when you're working with patients and you're not getting those results that you're hoping for. You may want to dig a little bit deeper. You may want to look at the microbiome in more depth. And if they have low acromancia, you know there are ways to increase acromancia. Lactobacillus is another one that uh, there's quite a few studies now showing that that also helps promote repair of the epithelial lining. um, Help can. can both help stimulate regeneration and also promote differentiation. Um, from a diet standpoint, one of the ones I want to mention is, um, so there, these compounds called indoles, mm-hmm. which are um, present in cruciferous vegetables, various types of indoles, mm-hmm. particularly something called I3C for short, indole 3 carbonyl Which it's we actually, think
0: about for estrogen metabolism. Right. I but it plays a
1: crucial role in this whole sort of barrier differentiation process. Um, And so there are certain things like uh, fasting, ketogenesis, um, microbes like acromantia, uh, lactobacillus, even E. coli that promote this sort of stem cell proliferation. But at the same time, you don't want that to be sort of excessive or out of control. Uh, You want that to be balanced. And research shows that one of the main balancing factors are these indole products. Um, Hmm. And there are sort of two ways you can get them. One is from cruciferous vegetables. Um, So again, this is this indole 3 carbonyl gets converted to DIM, uh, diindole methane. Um, That's facilitated by stomach acid. So this is where you're connecting the dots that if you don't have good levels of stomach acid, you may not be doing that conversion very well. Um, But they act through something called, and I I brought this up, uh, I think in probably one of the previous podcasts, it's got a complicated name, but it's called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. It plays an absolutely critical role in this whole mediation of environmental and bacterial signals and barrier functions. Um, And actually, I do have a review paper here. I just want to read a couple of the lines from to kind of underscore this. Um, This one we can put in the show notes potentially. Okay. Um, so the title of the the article is "Cell Intrinsic Aerohydrocarbon Receptor Signaling is Required for the Resolution of Injury-Induced uh, Colonic Stem Cells." Um, and so the the lines I wanted to quote here, just because I think they're so impactful, is uh, the aerohydrocarbon receptor is an environmental sensor that integrates microbial and dietary cues to influence physiological processes within the intestinal environment. So it just plays this major, major role in sort of interpreting what's going on and then adjusting processes. Um, and then the last line says, AHR is at a pivotal position in the delicate balance between controlled regeneration and malignant transformation. So that's, yeah, that's, and so it's, it's actually thought of as, um, it's, there's a review paper that said that this AHR receptor is now thought to be considered a tumor suppressor for colon cancer.
0: Fascinating. Isn't so this is
1: really gets into this whole sort of barrier regeneration, but it's a delicate balance. You don't wanna to have too much uh, proliferation because that may yep. set the stage for some sort of uh, malignancy tumor, for example, colon cancer. But
0: well, what would excessively stimulate like in our toolkit? Like wh- when you caution us, what are you thinking about specifically?
1: Um, So there's good research now suggesting that chronic infections, um, so basically it's sort of a a built-in response that when you have gut infections, that proliferation increases because you're trying to basically uh, prevent or reduce the damage that the Mm -hmm. pathogens can cause. Some of them are actually inside the cells. They infect the cells. So it's a way to kind of get rid of those infected cells. So it's gonna accelerate that process. Um, inflammation, chronic inflammation is also known to accelerate that process. Um, long-term, chronic inflammation can be a major contributor to stem cell exhaustion so that you're no longer able to sort of regenerate if you have yep. too much inflammation. Um, but this, kind of getting back to the aerohydrocarbon receptor and these indoles is they really help to promote that differentiation process. Um, so that you get sort of the, that proliferation is managed, it's regulated, uh, not excessive. And this is just an example of all these factors that come into play in the barrier from diet and from the microbes that help to balance this process so that you can ensure healthy outcomes.
0: So I3C as DIM, so after it's converted to DIM, and we can prescribe DIM as a standalone, right? Which would be which, in, in addition to cruciferous, obviously, in the diet, um, will stimulate these uh, receptors. Right. And then, st- yeah. you know, yeah, and pro- then there's. Promoting balance.
1: So, cruciferous vegetables are a key source. And then um, also uh, products from the microbiome, um, especially lactobacillus and other species, those are the probably the best studied that can convert uh, tryptophan. Into these indole metabolites, so there's several several ways to get these right. products. Um, and research also shows that it's um, the expression of that receptor is primarily uh, sort of upregulated just normally in the upper small intestine. Also plays a really key role in oral tolerance. Um, so there's just lots oh, of sort of benefits to interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So I think. It's just, it's sort of overwhelming how much of this research has been coming out in recent years, but I think it, uh, the bottom line is it leads to potentially new ways in which we can assess the barrier uh, and also essentially approach treatment and improve barrier function.
0: So fascinating. It's just really cool. I, you know, think about allergic disease. I mean, I teach on it Mm -hmm. at um, IFM and of course we see I think what there was a recent statistic: one in four people have um, allergic sensitization. It's probably even higher than that. But but I'm I'm thinking about oral tolerance a lot, and we see we see adult onset, you know, loss of oral tolerance and establishment of allergies, even anaphylaxis. And you know, this is interesting. You know, it's just potentially one way we we can th- you know another tool we can think about, yeah. um, and probably you know approaching it. I mean, would we use DIM? I'm just sort of thinking out loud. I3C or DIM to help promote tolerance through these receptors, or would we be, you know, using the various um, probiotics and and prebiotics, or maybe both? Just fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it would be good me- to see more human studies at this point, yeah. um, particularly on that. So most, of course, most of what's done so far is animal studies. Um, yep. Yeah. So I'd I'd have to go back and look at my research to see. Um, How you might translate probably in. be more. Yeah, there would probably be more clinical evidence on the probiotic side, sure. Um, than there would be on DIM, for example. The DIM is mostly based on studies in animals at this point.
0: It's it's it's, it's still cool. It's interesting, and it's always fun to kind of think way outside the box, which you know we can yeah. do in this medicine. Um, I so, so. So with chronic infections, um, I mean, and this would be anything that's going to stimulate proliferation. So just the whole chronic, plenty of our patients come to us with these smoldering sort of, I mean, dysbiosis could fit into the uh, category of, of being a chronic low-grade infection and thus, you know, stimulating proliferation, increasing risk for colorectal cancers, which are, you know, on the rise. Um,
1: thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, um, it's going to be a little bit microbe specific, so I wouldn't want to necessarily extrapolate and say all pathogens, all opportunists have that effect. Um, and in fact, there, there are a few examples of pathogens like Shigella, which actually is on GMAP. We don't see it very often, but Mm -hmm. uh, Shigella actually has the opposite effect. Um, so that one in particular produces virulence factors that basically reduce regeneration. Um, and for particular reasons, that's an advantage for that particular pathogen. Mm. Um, so not necessarily a feature of all pathogens, at least during the infection, um, but the general idea of chronic inflammation, promoting uh, excessive inappropriate proliferation, I think is out there. Established. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the sort of general, generally accepted risk factors, I think for increased, not just cancer, but of course, virtually any chronic disease. Right. Um, but there will and be however, some nuance, though.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. But I think any weight yeah. on the web, you know, is is potentially a problem. I want to just circle back to you talking about ketones and the benefit of ketones and ask your thoughts on, um, you know, a ketogenic diet. So you talked about fasting, stimulating stem cells and, and gut regeneration and being an important tool in our toolkit or time restricted eating. Um. But ketogenic diets, certainly in animal models, have have had some negative outcomes. We haven't seen the same. We haven't seen that same outcome translated to humans. Ketogenic diets are generally beneficial, although we can see that it can um, sort of lead to almost a a, a compromised microbiota. So I want to ask your question. Ask you on using a ketogenic diet um, for stem cell regeneration. Uh, and your thoughts. And we can always consider pulsing it. It, it. it shouldn't be a long-term intervention unless you're doing something, working with somebody like ep- with epilepsy or maybe um, certain type of diabetes. But the other question that I want to ask you on, on after that is using ketone esters. And would that be something in your toolkit for thinking about stem cells?
1: Um, that's a good question. So it's hard to extrapolate from the research the long-term um, we don't really know enough at this point, I think, to really say what the effects would be long-term, uh, short-term, uh, the research does suggest, and again, I don't know if there's enough yet for us to say, yes, this is a, you know, well-established clinical tool, um, but enough research to suggest that a ketogenic diet increased availability of ketones, uh, in the stem cell niche, uh, should help to promote regeneration. There's an accumulating amount of studies for that. Um, but, you know, I would say that probably the, the majority of studies I've seen have to do more with fasting mm-hmm. um, and fasting will upregulate ketogenesis in the stem cells. Uh, so, so far, it seems that the best evidence is based on fasting. And what um, kind
0: of fasting but, structure?
1: Um. So I've come across studies both for time-restricted feeding Um mm-hmm diet, long-term, kind of longer-term dietary restriction. Uh, And then there was one study on the fasting mimicking diet.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. So there seems to be a growing amount of evidence that different types of fasting type diets do tend to stimulate ketogenesis, which then promotes this regeneration process. Um, There's actually a fair amount of research also on high fat diets, not necessarily ketogenic diets, uh, but those actually can lead to excessive proliferation. So like anything, I think it's it's a balance. Um, whether yep. the standard ketogenic diet um, amounts to quote excessive, I think remains to be determined. Um, but my guess is that sort of short-term for promoting healing, um, that there's probably re- a relatively low risk, um, yeah. probably significant benefit for patients that may be um, older or compromised in some way, uh, where they're not able to heal the the barriers so well.
0: And there's a huge continuum in implementing a ketogenic diet. You know, one can do so in a in a in in a balanced way, and you know, one can do so with you know bacon and cheese. <laughs> so you know, we're <laughs> right. gonna There's going to be a far-reaching, you know, effect on the microbiome, depending on depending on your choice of implementing a keto. But it,
1: right. And it does kind of suggest, again, looking at beyond just sort of one or two factors at a time. Yes. Uh, we just talked about that whole AHR receptor, the cruciferous vegetable derived yep. indoles um, that promote differentiation. So it's possible that if you have a balanced diet um, that includes cruciferous vegetables, for example, um, while you're on that healing ketogenic diet, that that may result in better outcomes. Again, we don't have direct studies demonstrating that that combination will do that, uh, but we have individual studies that suggest that could be the case.
0: And we have, you know, studies looking at certain dietary patterns, you know, just being beneficial over the long haul. We've got blue, you know, blue zone data, you know, those centenarians, we've got an idea of the snapshot of a healthy centenarian's gut. You know, we have our study showing, um, you know, a, 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 an eating pattern um, with you know a balanced high vegetable you know some animal protein etc. resulted in bio-age reversal. There's mediter- there's studies hmm. you know plenty of studies on 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 the Mediterranean diet as beneficial and also showing biological age reversal. So I I think we have some you know indirect evidence uh, that it's likely really beneficial. <laughs>
1: <Exactly>.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. All right, so what else do we wanna talk about here? Um, intestinal, do you wanna like run through some of the key markers? So I wanna like, we could let's summarize interventions, let's run through um, uh, key markers on the GI map. And before we get there, is there any of the other background, any important points for us to uh, be aware of?
1: I think we covered most of the sort of main concepts when it comes to, Mm -hmm. I mean, the the main points I think overall here is to, um, in terms of barrier components, again, kind of expand your view beyond just the tight junctions, leaky gut, that we're looking at the microbiome. We're looking at secretory IgA. We're looking at uh, mostly indirect markers for mucus, like acromancia. We're looking at immune health. So there's this sort of combination of markers that help you understand holistically what's going on with the barrier. Um, And then in terms of that sort of introducing or just sort of emphasizing this developing area of epithelial regeneration as being, a that's sort of the essence of gut healing. You know, we used to think of gut healing as sort of healing those tight junctions, sort of um, improving intestinal permeability. That is actually part of that process because that's one of the features of the epithelial uh, cell functions but there's much more to it than that. Um, And really kind of looking at it more from this regenerative process and just appreciating that certain microbes play a role in that process, certain uh, dietary factors play a big role and that we may be able to influence that. Um, So that's kind of sort of the leading edge of of where things are at now. Um, But taking it back to looking at GI map and how would you more comprehensively assess the barrier, um, again, it comes down to just looking at if you see, of course, pathogens, opportunists, overgrowth. Um, we know that most of those will disrupt the barrier one way or another. So you already know that likely the barrier is compromised just by pathogens and opportunists for the most part. Um, and there will be some details there. Um, and then also looking at the normal microbes and if those are especially deficient. Uh, particularly these key ones like acromantia, the butyrate producers, fecalibacterium, um, lactobacillus. Uh, we didn't talk much about Escherichia, um, but that one also plays an essential role in this whole intestinal barrier regeneration process. Um, that's a pattern, a common pattern that we see. If you see low uh, Escherichia, low acromantia, and also low bacteroidetes, um, that is one of the common patterns that we see that suggest poor barrier function, especially in the colon. Uh, We actually know that those are all mucus dwelling. So a lot of the bacteroidetes are, certainly acromantia is, and then um, escherichia is one of the key mucus dwelling. Um, So again, some indirect ways of looking at the barrier there. And when you see those are deficient, uh, for especially for some of them, we have good uh, tried and true ways to increase them. Uh, so with fecalibacterium, we'd want to look at fiber, polyphenols, um, postbiotics, as you mentioned, the butyrate, of course, being kind of the best known, um, and of course, probiotics. We call those the four Ps just to easily remember them. So that's prebiotics, polyphenols, probiotics, and then postbiotics. Um, and then uh, when you look beyond that to I mean, there's there are some sort of additional details like parasites uh, can drought, disrupt the berry in different ways, especially giardia. Yeah, um, And then there's the intestinal health markers. So uh, probably, the of course, the best known is zonulin. That's the most direct marker for uh, leaky gut itself. Um, but low secretory IgA, that almost always tracks with lack of normal bacteria, especially acromantia. Um, so if you see both of those low, Acromancia and secretory IgA, Likely, there's a significant barrier issue. Uh, and again, we have lots of tools that we can use now, and including probiotics uh, to help to increase agramania.
0: Good, good, and we're you know we're thinking now, everybody about intermittent fasting and the benefits on stimulating intestinal stem cells. Uh, production and differentiation and again, the really cool pearl you gave us about acromancia being a player in stem cell differentiation specifically to goblet cells to make that mucin that turns over um, every few hours <laughs> extraordinarily enough <Yeah. laughs> and into that environment we can only think about bringing a whole a robust nutrient dense whole foods diet um, to make sure we have all of the ingredients for these for these this incredible complex array of compounds to be made. However, in certain occasions, as you also brought up, using a ketogenic diet or the or or well, I brought up the idea of ketone esters, you know, maybe some of these more radical interventions in the short term uh, to help stimulate uh, barrier repair. But some questions we both had around long term. Um, well, as usual, you know, you've just brought a compelling conversation to New Frontiers. I'm always grateful for that. Uh, Folks will have links to the various papers um, that Tom has has referenced in the show notes and we'll link to your other podcasts. I encourage people to listen to them, particularly the most recent one we had on hydrogen sulfide. It was another game changer. Like maybe we're over-treating what we infer is hydrogen sulfide small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and maybe we're over treating it to the detriment of where hydrogen sulfide is essential uh, elsewhere in the body. And so that was, that was, that was a fun, cool, you know, practice changing podcast. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with today?
1: Um, I guess maybe just a couple things. One of the, uh-huh. maybe two of the factors that I would add just to give a couple more pearls on things that may help with regeneration um, there's a growing amount of research now on, of course, NAD precursors. Oh yes, right, nicotinamide riboside um, and others that are out there. Um, so research is starting to show that those also can help promote the regeneration process and essentially, um, sort of in their opinion, potentially rejuvenate the intestinal lining mm-hmm. with aging. So kind of TBD on that one, but again, there's a growing amount of research that that yeah. may be one of the additional benefits when patients are taking those. Um, and even just some of the simple day-to-day nutrients like biotin, biotin is essential for regeneration of the epithelium, um, and actually certain microbes. So I mentioned Escherichia, which is E. coli,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, can stimulate proliferation of stem cells in various ways. One of them is by producing biotin. So again, there's lots of factors that they can produce and we don't necessarily need to remember all of them, but the key is if you see them low on GI map, you may want to consider uh, ways to improve them. Um, But other than that, I think it's kind of the the take-homes would be just to kind of remember and maybe encourage practitioners to seek out some of this research. And I will put uh, hopefully some of those papers in the show notes, Um, but research has progressed tremendously to the point where I think we have more to work with now than sort of was typically noted 10 or 20 years ago for gut healing. Yeah. Uh, But kind of coming back to our original point, uh, glutamine is still quite useful, but we have more options now, I think. Um, We're zooming way out
0: from just, you know, patching up the gut way out.
1: Absolutely. And it's sort of also realizing that a lot of what we're already doing just has these additional beneficial effects that we didn't know about. So yeah. it's not totally changing everything we're doing, of course. It's just sort of adding weight to why are we recommending cruciferous vegetables, for example.
0: You know, going back to the whole, going back to to, to nicotinamide riboside, which is supporting the production of nicotinamide um, adenine dinucleotide (NAD), which drops as we age. I mean, that's a fundamental player in 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 our energetics again, going back to the to, to mitochondria. And it just occurs to me that when we're looking at acquired and and you know, genetic mitochondropathies, they first show up in the gut, and one of the some of the key interventions are our go-to mitochondrial nutrients like CoQ10, alpha-lipoic um, acid. I wonder if there's a place for those here in what you're talking about.
1: Absolutely, and that actually would be a connection back in part to what we talked about in the last podcast on hydrogen sulfide. So, um, there's so much concern about now that there's these breath tests out there that detect hydrogen sulfide. Um, even though research actually shows it likely mostly comes from the oral microbiome. So I'm kind of questioning whether and how much that may reflect. Yeah. Um, but it, certainly there is enough research to suggest that really high levels of hydrogen sulfide in the gut can can have negative impacts on the barrier. But normal physiological hydrogen sulfide is thought to improve barrier function in several ways. Um, and one of those main ways is actually through that your normal healthy colon cells, they're getting enough butyrate, The mitochondria are healthy. They have CoQ10. That's essential to convert hydrogen sulfide into um, these detoxified products, like just sulfate, um, but also to these antioxidants we talked about that have potent antioxidant activity. Um, And that's thought to now support systemic antioxidant activity um, just Um, from- apart from the products produced by the microbiome um, that go through this process. And you need CoQ10 in these colon cells to do that. Um, so I think it kind of, again, speaks to how these things are all interconnected. Uh, and if you're deficient in CoQ10, and not only may you have um, you know, just sort of the direct effects of CoQ10 deficiency, but then you won't be able to detoxify hydrogen sulfide very well. And that's part of the equation that's not focused on so much is maybe not so much avoid your cruciferous vegetables, because those are healthy, (laughs) that benefits, but make sure you can detoxify um, hydrogen sulfide well, um, so that you can uh, really gain the benefits from it.
0: Fascinating. So you might use CoQ10. I know we're at the end here, but you might use CoQ10 if you suspect pathological hydrogen sulfide overgrowth.
1: Absolutely. CoQ10, polyphenols, and fiber because most hydrogen sulfide comes from the process of protein fermentation. So excess protein getting into the colon leads to high ammonia, high hydrogen sulfide, et cetera. Um, Lots and lots of research studies show that polyphenols and fiber actually help to reduce that process. Um, Polyphenols may also directly help to detoxify hydrogen sulfide. And which
0: ones? Which would be your top ones? (laughs)
1: <laughs> for polyphenols. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a great question. So I think the best studied would be, uh, extracts from berries, especially the antho anthocyanins or anthocyanidin. Uh-huh. I always get uh-huh. them mixed up. Um, one of my favorites is rosmarinic acid from rosemary. Yeah, Um, for sure. Um, green tea extract has been studied and, and basically does that as well. Resveratrol, quercetin. Um, so, there's a growing list of these polyphenols that have been shown to detoxify hydrogen sulfide.
0: Fascinating. They're also, they're also, all of them are epinutrients. So, <laughs> I've been thinking <laughs> about them in my work. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, we're at the end. Thank you for that little divergence. That 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 those handful of pearls for everybody. I know they're they'll they'll they will appreciate them. So, um, again, Tom, thanks. Really good conversation. My pleasure.